0: Hey, True Sex and Wild Love listeners, I don't know about you, but I'm very, very fussy about what I put on my face, what I put on my vulva, and what I put in my vagina. And that is why I was so excited when I learned about a company called Living Libations. What is it? It's a luxurious Canadian line of pure source, raw, organic, and botanical beauty care, intimacy lubricants, raw chocolate, oh my God, so delicious, and holistic oral care products that you can use after you eat the chocolate. Oh my gosh, I love this stuff. First of all, it was created by Nadine Artemis, who calls herself a beauty philosopher, which I love. She's the author of Renegade Beauty and Holistic Dental Care. And she has an incredible philosophy. They use essential oils and their products are highly concentrated. They preserve purity, space, and resources by offering full potency products without any fillers, no diluters, no artificial colors, and no petrochemicals because ick. I don't want that stuff on my face or on my vajay for sure. I love so many of the products uh, that I'm using of theirs. My favorite might be this rose cream, which you can put on your lips. You can put on your cheeks. I kind of spread some on my arms sometimes if I want a little rosy glow. It smells delicious and it feels delicious on your skin. But I am obsessed, completely obsessed with their product called Languid Love Butter. Only living libations could make this. This is a lube that smells and tastes so good and is made with ingredients, wait for it, that you can eat, okay? Because I'm not putting anything on my vulva or on my vagina that I wouldn't put in my mouth, okay? just trust me, you're going to just love these products. Look, synthetic lubes are often just kind of momentary moisturizers or like petal plumpers. You know, they're only offering you a very temporary lubrication. And often uh, those ingredients of kind of drugstore lubes actually uh, dehydrate your vulva and your vagina. And we don't want that. On the other hand, Living Libations has this organic petal passion serum, they call it. And that sort of lubricates your spaces and soothes you using ingredients that you wouldn't be scared to put in your mouth and they're ingredients that you can pronounce. There's something really great about that. I'm obsessed and I think you will be too. And here's some really great news about Living Libations and their incredible product line. Just go to livinglibations.com forward slash TSWL and use the code TSWL and you can get 20% off. Hey, that means that you can buy an extra pot of languid Love Butter and you can send it to me.
1: In this episode of the True Sex and Wild Love podcast, we bring on this super fascinating Dr. Curtis Crane. He's a board-certified plastic surgeon who is also trained as a reconstructive urologist with a fellowship training in gender affirmation surgery. We take a mind-blowing dive into what gender confirmation surgery really is, his special techniques, and why Dr. Crane identifies as an ally to the transgender community. You will not want to miss this episode. Let us know what you think. Hit us up on social media. Leave us a review. You guys rock.
0: All right, Wednesday, here we are. We're back again. Back in the podcasting
1: cockpit. Separate yet together. <laughs> I don't know. That just- I like the podcasting cockpit. It sounds like my kind of place. <laughs> oh,
0: my God. Or just the podcasting chair, okay? Sorry. <laughs> my brain. <laughs> is not firing 100% because of all the crazy stuff going on. But I'm so excited about our guest
1: today. I'm and really topic. excited. I know. Yeah. I I met our, our guest, Dr. Curtis Crane, um, not too long ago, a couple months ago here in Austin through this guy that I'm dating now. You remember when we had that episode with the dating coach and I was like, remember, I went on this date and I didn't know if it Demona. was a date or not.
0: Yes. Demona. What's the follow-up with that?
1: Yeah. We're still, we're like dating. We're like doing, so she doing gave, it.
0: She, so her advice
1: <laughs> was helpful. Damona yeah. gave you some good advice. She gave me some good advice and he listened to the episode too. <laughs> oh my God. You're so clever the way you played that oh uh, but anyways he introduced me to curtis and i l- he's one of my favorite people now curtis is like the most interesting oh. person that you could possibly meet
0: oh my god welcome to the show curtis do you want us to call you dr crane or <laughs> curtis for this show
2: De- oh definitely curtis please <laughs> and thank okay. you whitney i had no idea you thought i was the most interesting person you ever met
1: you are and we I dinner i feel the same way about we... you Yes. God made my day. I feel
0: very cool now. (laughs) And the topic is so cool as well. So, just all around, like we have a fascinating episode ahead of us. I think we're going to talk about what's now called gender confirmation or gender affirmation surgery, right, Curtis? Which is what you do for a living.
2: That's correct.
0: And it sounds more like not just a thing you do for a living, but I would imagine when you do something like this, it becomes almost like a ministry. You're really helping people and you're educating the public too. So thank you for that.
2: Oh yeah. Thank you. You know, I, I, I really appreciate you taking interest in it. It is like this, you know, I'm, I'm coming in from the medical side, of course, but it's this medical, social, political movement. That's, uh, that's just really exciting to be a part of.
0: Okay. Can we talk a little about that? Because I I did read that between 2015 and 2016 alone, um, gender-affirming surgeries uh, increased 20%. And then um, in 2019, there were some statistics um, by the American Society of Plastic Surgeons that at least 11,000 gender confirmation surgeries were performed in the U.S. So that's like... Ten or fifteen percent higher, they say, than the previous year. So this is like a big cultural shift, and I'm glad you're here to walk us through maybe what the actual surgeries are like and and what your mission is.
2: Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, the surgeries are increasing uh, in number. I think. Uh, for two main reasons. One, insurance companies are finally recognizing that these are medically necessary surgeries, and so patients that couldn't afford to pay cash for them are finally able to have access to the surgeries they need. And then, two, there's more surgeons interested in learning these surgeries, and uh, so patients have more access to healthcare. So, of course, both are wonderful. Wow. I
0: mean... Whitney, I don't know about you, but I really don't know the basics of gender affirmation surgery. I mean, researching this episode a little bit, um, I learned some new terms and it was eye-opening, but I want to really dig into it. I'm sure you do too, Whit. Um, Yeah. I
1: think that would be really interesting because I don't know anything about it. I don't even know how it's possible. It's hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that this is Possible and that, yeah, can, yeah exactly. Because <laughs> I remember no. going in, it's amazing. And I remember going into your office and you were talking about how you act, sometimes have to dissect the clitoral nerve.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, a few okay. times a week.
1: Okay, you need a to few tell- times a week. <laughs> no big deal. Average you, Monday.
2: Well, you do- know, I everyone should be very familiar with the clitoral nerve, you know, don't you agree?
1: Yes. Oh. Yeah,
0: I mean, absolutely. All right, I need you to tell us the basics of gender affirmation surgery, like how it works for those who um, want to transition from like assigned male at birth to female and and assigned female at birth, but they're male and for binary People, sorry, I know this is a big question. I want to get to the clitoral nerve.
2: <laughs> it, it all comes back to the clitoral nerve. Uh, okay, you know, we, we will get there.
0: Let's start. <laughs> let's start wherever you're comfortable telling us the basics about the actual surgeries.
2: Well, so the basics would be, um, say, a, a patient calls my office uh, requesting gender confirmation surgery. That would typically be someone that years before had started their transition. Um, there, now, occasionally it's less time than that, but the typical patient, they start transitioning years before, and the surgery is just kind of the icing on the cake. Um, the uh, patients start by seeing a mental health provider that helps guide them through the transition, that even helps figure out uh, if transitioning is what they need in life, uh, because you know, not all cases, uh, that come to a therapist, uh, not all patients truly have, um, gender incongruence. Uh, and so the therapist helps sort, maneuver, uh, the, the different, um, the different possibilities, the different diagnoses that could be. And then if someone truly does have gender incongruence, then there would be discussion about pursuing cross-sex hormones. So if it's, a male to female patient, then that patient would get on estrogen and probably spironolactone to block testosterone. And then if it's a female to male patient, then the patient would get on testosterone. And then typically uh, what I hear from my patients is once cross-sex hormones are started, there's kind of like this huge sigh of relief, like, wow, this is exactly what I've needed. This is what I've been missing. Um, you know, is that because
1: how they're feeling?
2: Yeah. They really feel complete. Like a female to male patient would say, uh, to me often, oh, I just, I felt really complete finally being on testosterone. Like everything became clearer to me. Um, and the opposite for estrogen, uh, for a, uh, male to female patient, uh, it's, it's just like this overwhelming sense of, uh, being whole. And so then the patient would continue on cross-sex hormones and then eventually progress to the point um, where they may or may not start seeking surgical options. Now, the majority of trans, uh, of trans people in the community don't seek any type of surgery. They just live their life um, w- without surgery in any you know, some people get on hormones, some people don't. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of degrees, and it, it's one of the reasons why the diagnosis of gender incongruence is really interesting because it's it's very dynamic. Some people need to go all the way to surgery. Some would stop at hormones. Some would just uh, dress in a certain way or cut their hair a certain way. And it's also it depends on the point in life they're at. So I've had. Many patients where I do a chest masculizing surgery for a female to male patient, you remove the breasts, you masculize the chest, and they say, I would never get the genital reconstruction. That's just too much for me. But then five years later, either because they meet someone in their life they want to be intimate with, or their their gender incongruence comes back and they have a lot of stress over not having the right anatomy between their legs, then they decide, okay, now I definitely need to go forward with the genital reconstruction. So there's sort of every possibility you could imagine.
0: And so, it's a process you're saying? It's, it's a
2: pro- it's a process, yes, very even
0: once Even once the surgeries start, that's a process and there's a progression. Some people will wanna stop at one point and other people will wanna go to another point. Can you get into the nitty? So I, I understand that what you talked about, like uh, the chest surgery, that's con- those are considered like top surgeries. Yes. And then there's there are bottom surgeries, um, right? That's how it's divided.
2: Yes, um, and then there's also facial feminizing surgeries that I do. There's body contouring, liposuction. You know, uh, men and women carry fat in a different distribution, and some some patients uh go ahead and want to alter uh fat deposition uh there's 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 all kinds of there's voice surgeries that that some patients get uh male to female patients that want a higher pitch voice
0: Interesting. Wow. you know Whitney. whenever i think about like that i don't like my thighs and i don't like the tendency in my body of my adipose tissue to collect in my thighs and my ass i'm going to remember <laughs> Not only do some people
1: like that, some people pay for it, or yeah. some people have a surgery. <laughs> right. For it. Exactly. It's, it's so true. Do you find that when your patients come in, do they bring in pictures of celebrities, or do you find that they want a specific type of body more so than something else?
2: Oh, yeah. The patients have thought about this surgery uh, as far back as they can remember. And Whitney, I. I think you've been over, but on my refrigerator is a picture that a patient brought in. Uh, I was getting ready to perform her vaginoplasty, so she was a male-to-female patient, and she brought in this grid of about 40 vaginas, uh, close-up, yeah. close-up vulvas, and oh. about, across about 10 of them, she wrote no and then uh, there were a bunch of them that said yes. And I said, you know, I kind of looked at the pictures and, and summarized them. I'm like, okay, so you want kind of a low-profile, sporty vagina with not too much sporty. extra tissue, <laughs> something that corners really well. And she's like, yeah, that's what I want. So, yes, uh, patients bring in pictures. They, they, uh, they have very um, direct thoughts on, on how they want to look.
0: Because it's how they're going to live and live their sexuality.
2: That's right.
1: I'm, okay. I'm looking at your before and after photos. Of, how do you say it? V- vaginoplasty? Yeah. 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 vaginoplasty? Vaginoplasty.
0: vaginoplasty. Yeah. Can you walk us through this? Vaginoplasty, Ow. phalloplasty, sure. erythroplasty, scrotoplasty, and then my favorite, which I can't pronounce, which is <laughs> the maximization of the clitoris so that it can function as a penis? Oh yeah. What is that called? Ooh, the, which one's that? Metoid.
2: Meto- yep. Yeah.
1: Say it, doctor.
2: M- metoidioplasty.
1: Metoidioplasty.
2: Yeah. Metoidioplasty is a made-up Greek word. I believe Don Laub, uh, who was a famous pioneer in transgender surgery, he was at Stanford in the 80s and 90s. I believe he came up with word, and it's it's a it's a Greek word. Meta means toward and oideo means male genitalia, and plasty is plasty, so it's toward male genitalia, and it's basically releasing all the suspensory ligaments of the clitoris, elongating it, and then you can use labia minora to build a urethra below it so the patient has a small phallus they can stand to urinate with. They can get natural erections because there's erectile tissue in the clitoris, and um, Yeah.
1: I wish it I looks could like a, it right you can, you can see it on. I'm looking at it right now <laughs> on his website. It looks like a, like a smaller, uh, uncircumcised penis. There you go. So it's
2: mind
1: blowing. Wow. And, and <laughs> fascinated.
0: And so could you say again, Curtis, ha- the, the functionality of the penis that, You build from a vagina. Sorry if I'm using the um, incorrect terms. No, no. The things you said you can urinate, have an erection, have intercourse. I presume. And what what would the size of this penis be if that's what it's called? Again, sorry if I'm getting my terminology wrong.
2: No, no, that's that's totally accurate. Um, It it depends. There's two types of genital. Well, there's there's actually many types under two broad categories for genital reconstruction for a trans man and a trans man is female is a female to male person. Um, so there's uh, metoidioplasty, which we just discussed, which will yield like a one to two inch phallus. That's about the girth of your thumb. And uh, it's created by releasing the suspensory ligaments and whatnot all around the clitoris and building a urethra. You can build a scrotum From the labia majora, and embryologically, those are uh, synonymous structures. If uh, yeah, so so sometimes I refer to myself as a reverse embryologist because I'm taking (laughs) one structure and turning it into its homologous structure. Had the embryo uh, been born female as opposed to male, or vice versa, right? Like
0: uh, people need to understand that, right? Like the clitoris and the penis, same embryonic tissue.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, metoidioplasty, uh, is very functional because it has its own erectile tissue in it. So it can get rigid, uh, doesn't need any hardware in there. Um, you can urinate through it if, uh, if a patient wants that. And you build the urethra out of labia menorah, like I mentioned. Um, now that's metoidioplasty. Phalloplasty is considered when, um, you're bringing in tissue from some other area of the body to create a much larger phallus than one to two inches. And as you can imagine, a lot of our patients say, I would never be happy with a one to two inch phallus. I need a five, six, seven, or even eight inch phallus I've created Mm -hmm. in which case. Yeah. So surgeons are really good at removing tissue. The trick is adding tissue. And so, we uh incorporate flaps and flaps are basically it's a medical term for tissue that's brought in that has its own blood supply so we do free flaps uh where we take tissue from the forearm or the back it's called the latissimus dorsi flap or from the thigh that's a pedicled flap where we keep it attached to its blood supply and we create a six seven or eight inch phallus and then these phalluses They are only made of skin and fat. They don't have erectile tissue in them because the forearm, the thigh, and the back does not naturally have erectile tissue in it. And there's really, at this point, no way to build it. So what we do to make the pelvis functional is we put in a penile implant, the same that you would for a 70-year-old impotent man. And there's a pump in the scrotum. You can pump it up. And I like to describe... Uh, these patients as superhuman or my cyborgs because <laughs> they can pump up their implant and they can have sex for four days straight if they want. They won't go down no matter how many orgasms they have. There's a little button that they push that makes the fellas go down when they don't want to be erect anymore.
0: And they can experience an orgasm. Sorry, what Go ahead. I just wanted to say they can experience an orgasm with this.
2: Yes. Alice. Yes, they can.
1: And what are they pumping it up with? Is it air that's going in there or what's going in?
2: Uh, It's saline. It's a closed system. And so you would put uh, the whole implant inside the patient's body, which would include a reservoir, kind of like under the abdominal muscles. And that holds about 100 cc's of fluid. And then there's tubing attached to a pump in the scrotum. and You can just manually with your fingers pump the pump in the scrotum like four to six times. And that will pump the fluid from the reservoir into the cylinders in the fouls. And that, and that's what makes it rigid.
0: And you've performed more than 600 phalloplasty surgeries since 2012, I see.
2: Yeah, we, I mean, my, my practice, and we have two locations, one in Austin, one in San Francisco, we might be closer to 800 by now.
1: You really know how he's, to
0: do this surgery.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's the best of the best. That's for sure. It also <laughs> says that you're one of the only surgeons who is trained in both plastic surgery and reconstructive urologists, which is interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not a very common path. Um, I, uh, I did six years of a urology residency and then a year of a trauma and reconstructive urology fellowship in Detroit. And then I came became a fully... Board certified plastic surgeon with a focus on microsurgery. After a three year uh, residency in San Antonio, and then after that, I did a year uh, fellowship in transgender surgery. So I did two residencies and two fellowships, which is which is a little rare.
0: That's a lot.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it was eleven years after medical school. Which, <laughs> That's which a lot. good
1: lord,
0: it's a lot of specialization. But I mean, thank God, we're talking about something. So important, so intimate, so uh, critical to people's feelings about themselves and sexual satisfaction. I mean, it only makes sense that you would train so long. But thank God for that.
2: No. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, you know, there's really not a day in my life where I go, you know, I just, I just didn't really need the urology. That was a waste of six years. <laughs> you know, it all, it all, it all kind of comes in handy when you're building people's genitalia. You need to do also- it all
1: yeah everything. and I also find it interesting, like as you we talked a little bit about the beginning of the podcast about um that this is becoming like a whole movement, and that it's it's allowing people to feel whole in themselves, mm-hmm. and I feel like that's that has to be so rewarding and fulfilling for you to witness these people go through that transformation and finally feel like, oh, I'm me.
2: It's amazing. uh I mean, there's many stories that uh that just really stand out in my mind and what what the trans community has taught me is no matter how reclusive you are no matter how much you uh you know want to be alone or or whatever there is a part in all of us that wants to be accepted for who we really are and uh that's that's the driving force and when there's conflict between the way you view yourself and the way society views you in the case of a transgender individual, it creates a tremendous amount of stress. And I had patients tell me that before they got surgery, they just felt like they were lying to everyone. Every time they went to the grocery store or walked out in public or rode the bus. And um, it's, it's, it's shocking. It's something that The three of us take for granted.
0: We do. I mean, we just take for granted that we wake up every day and we feel more or less comfortable with um, the gender that was assigned to us at birth Mm -hmm. and our genitalia. Um, Could you just talk specifically about one procedure that that we didn't cover yet. And I apologize that my doorbell is ringing and nobody's (laughs) answering it. These are the perils of podcasting from home. But I want to talk a little bit about vaginoplasty. Could you just in detail describe that procedure to us?
2: Certainly. So vaginoplasty is, uh, plasty means like create. So vaginoplasty is creating a vagina versus Uh, ectomy would be removed like appendectomy you would remove an appendix so just some little little medical terminology there yeah so vaginoplasty versus sometimes like for a female to male patient when i'm doing a phalloplasty i'll perform a vaginectomy and that's when we remove the vagina versus vaginoplasty is we create a vagina for a male to female patient so um vaginoplasty uh, is a uh, common endpoint for a male to female patient. And what what happens is um, we take a scrotal skin graft uh, that we kind of put aside, and then we do an orchiectomy that's removal of the testicles. And then um, you have to create female genitalia. And if if you picture... Picture an erect male and male genitalia. Now, if you shrink the phallus down all the way down so that it actually bisects the scrotum, splits the scrotum in half, and then fillet it open, just mentally take a knife and and cut it down the middle, that's female genitalia. And so that's what we do in the surgery is... Um, we do that ocrectomy and then we take apart the phallus and open, we transect the urethra. The, the mucosa in between the labia minora and female anatomy, that is splayed open urethra. And so to create that mucosa effect in the uh, vaginoplasty, we, we fillet open the urethra and unfold it so that there's that nice pink mucosa between the labia minora which we create from penile skin flaps. And then we take the rest of the penile skin and create like the sleeve or the, the sheath of the vagina. We reduce the size of the head of the penis and keep it attached to its nerves and blood supply and create a clitoris. And we use parts of the scrotum to create the labia majora. Uh, we create a space in between the rectum. We, we move the rectum down, drop the rectum down with dissection. And then we raise the urethra and prostate uh, through dissection, and then we place that skin sheath of the penis in that space to create the the neo-vagina.
0: The neo-vagina. Yes. I love I love understanding the lingo, Whitney. Yes. And I, okay. So, and is sensation? I so it goes without saying, but I'll just say this: that not everybody who has that uh, reassignment surgery wants to have intercourse, right? True. What What is sensation like in general in terms of all the sexual activities that a person might want to experience? And then we could talk about intercourse too.
2: Yeah, I mean, I get I get texts at like three in the morning from my patients saying, "Oh my god, Dr. Crane, I just had my first orgasm and it was amazing. Thank you so much." <laughs> and I'm like, oh. I'm like, oh. That's great. Maybe you could have orgasms, you know, during business hours and let me know <laughs> instead of three in the morning. No, but, uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but when it happens, yeah. it happens. Maybe yeah. turn your phone off at night.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm always, I'm always really obviously happy for my patients when they experience their first orgasm, but yeah, the, the sensation's amazing. Um, they're, the patients are able to orgasm. It takes practice. Um, cause you know, a, Having your first vagina at age thirty or thirty-five—it's um, a—it's a new and wonderful and complicated thing to get used to. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> when—but when, uh, patients are virgasmic, and then same with the um, uh, female-to-male patients with phalloplasty. When we take a flap, say from the radial forearm, we'll take nerves from the forearm and get under an operating microscope. And so the nerves from the forearm into the clitoral nerve. Um, what? Yeah. And so, so that's oh. what gives the phallus sensation. We're, we're sewing together tiny little uh, one millimeter or less nerves under an operating microscope. And then the, the clitoral nerve will then grow down what's called the myelin sheath of the nerves of the forearm. And the patients will have sensation in their phallus. I'm
1: speechless. No, I'm like w- I don't even understand how that's possible. Okay, I think one of the ways it's possible
0: is that these surgeries have been being performed and being uh, fine tuned and improved for a while. Can you talk to us about that a little bit, Curtis? The you know h- how how the technology how the surgeries have improved over time. When did they start? I I don't know about the history of gender reassignment surgery.
2: Yeah. Um, th- you know, it's, uh, it's, it's been around, uh, forever and it's kind of shocking that we're still having like societal conflict over this. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the first sex change ever was, uh, during the time of the first Caesar, I think there is this, I would have to look it up, but I think there was this slave named Nero or something like that. And, Caesar was in love with Nero. Nero was a man. So, uh, the man was castrated and they're like, "Okay, now you're a woman." Uh so that's uh that's one of the first known sex changes thousands wow. of years ago.
0: The one I remember uh, who knew that that happened thousands of years ago, but you know Whitney and I um Work with people about relationships and their sexuality. So, like in a way, it's not surprising that people have wanted this since recorded history. The person that I remember, I, I think you might be too young, Whitney, um, but if you probably know the name Christine Jorgensen.
2: Oh, definitely. Yep.
0: Who? Mm-hmm. Who? Yeah. Who um, was the first person to become widely known in the U.S. for this surgery? And it, I don't know. Whitney, what the conversations were like when you were a kid. But there was so much fascination um, around this surgery happening when I was a kid. You know, people just couldn't stop talking about it and being fascinated by it. And I think Christine Jorgensen, you know, just had to bear this burden of being considered so singular and unique and sort of bearing the burden of everybody's curiosity. Do your patients talk to you, um, Curtis, about how that's changed or not, you know, how, how they feel socially and how they're treated. Is that part of your practice at all, um, to help them with that? Do you refer them to other people? And, and just, I wonder anecdotally if they're reporting, on um, the kind of stigma that surrounded the procedures in the seventies.
2: Um, yeah, they, um, and just, just to touch on what she said that, you know, the film, The Danish Girl came out um, in like 2015 or 16. And that was about uh, Lily Elby in, I think it was like 1910 or 20. 1930.
0: No, uh, so yeah, was it 30? Yeah, The first known recipient, right, of a male to female um, sex confirmation surgery. Yeah, Germany in 1930. Yeah. Go ahead. That's right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to point that out. And then, um, Ms. Jorgensen, uh, like you mentioned, I think she was in like the fifties or sixties.
0: Maybe so. I thought, I mean, I remember it from, when I was a kid, but maybe yeah. which would be later, but yeah, maybe it was still resonating. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised.
2: Yeah. So yes, it's, it has, it's come a very long way. Um, and, um, the the results have gotten a lot better. Uh, my patients often ask, um, "What's going to be the next breakthrough? Should I wait to get my surgery?" Um, mm. And I think the next biggest breakthrough will be when we are able to take stem cells from a patient's mouth or wherever and grow their own phallus in a lab, and then transplant it on them. Um. That, wait.
0: And- wait a second. <laughs> That is fascinating. Yeah. Could you, just, could you just break down the science behind that a little bit? And well, how many years do you think we're
1: from that?
2: <laughs> um, I would bet it will happen within the next 20 years. Wow. It'll happen. That's more incredible. Or less. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, break down the science behind it. Basically, you take some stem cells and then you got to take two bananas. And mix them all together. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, no um, I I don't know. I don't know how you grow these things. But there's a guy named Anthony Atala at Wake Forest that grows bladders. Uh, there really? are, yeah, uh, he's a pretty cool guy. Um, and uh, he's been doing that for a long time. There are some patients that have extremely dysfunctional bladders for whatever reason. And it's really hard to build a bladder. Um, I used to participate in these surgeries when I was a urology resident, where if someone has really bad bladder cancer, then you have to remove the whole bladder. Mm. Um, and you know, urinating is something that we need to do every day. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of functions that, uh, in the body that require you to empty those toxins. And so one thing we would do is harvest a bunch of intestine and, cut it open from being a tube, and then close up these long strips of intestine into a sphere, and that sphere would become the new bladder. Um, The problem with that is the patients would have to catheterize themselves because you couldn't get the intestine to contract in a coordinated effort to empty Mm -hmm. the bladder. Uh, and so the bladder is like this really remarkable anatomic structure where, um, it has, uh, it, it, it can, it can fill to massive volumes without increasing the pressure inside. And that's important because you don't want bladder, excuse me, you don't want urine reflexing up into the kidneys from the bladder. So it can, Mm -hmm. it can distend, uh, to five, 10 times it's, empty state without increasing the pressure and then when you want to empty the bladder there's signals from the brain and this sphere of muscle can contract and empty it so it's a really complicated structure to just build um and so there's this guy anthony atala that's been growing bladders for a long time and i actually emailed him like five years ago, and he has no idea who I am, but I'm a big fan of his. So, Anthony, <laughs> if you're listening, big shout out! <laughs> um, but, yeah, there you go. yeah, But I was like, Dr. Itala, <laughs> yeah, your next guest, Anthony Atala. I'd love to be on that show and ask him a few questions. But anyway, uh, I, I emailed him and I said, "Hey, Dr. Atala, um, you know, I serve the trans community. When will we be able to grow a phallus for a patient in a lab?" uh, similar to the way you're growing bladders. And he said, Hey, Curtis, thanks for reaching out. Uh, it'll probably be 20 years. So. We
0: heard it here, Whitney. Right here. Yeah, we did. Thank you for telling us that. I mean, just the, okay. The sheer number of surgeries, um, their complexity, um, and how they've changed over time is, um, So mind-boggling, and then then you factor in how it's changing people's lives, and how the surgeries and um, techniques are evolving. Wow! I mean, (laughs) sorry, I just I don't know what else to say except
1: that I had no idea about any of this. Did you, Whitney? No, I didn't. That's why I was like, we have to have Curtis on the show because (laughs) it's just it's like. I've never even met a person who does work like this before. And we talk to people all of the time in this space. And so I think it's just, I find it so interesting. And you're here in Austin. How many surgeries are you performing like this a week or a month?
2: Um, Me and uh, there's, I have two surgeons, uh, soon to be three here in Austin. Together, we performed seven or 800 surgeries last year. Um, and then, uh, we have another practice in, uh, San Francisco where there's three surgeons uh, that are all part of the Crane Center for Transgender Surgery. So we're, we're treating, you know, well over a thousand patients a year with surgery.
0: Wow. That's high volume. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, really a lot of surgeries. So I know that, Austin and San Francisco both skew very progressive socially and politically. Well, San Francisco less than it used to, but um, are you finding when you look at demographics about your work, Curtis, that it tends to happen mostly that surgeons are mostly in progressive cities or are there gender confirming surgeons um, all across the country? Do people have to travel to get this kind of surgery. Just a basic question.
2: Yeah, people. Unfortunately, people do have to travel uh, to get surgery. You really want to go to a, a center of excellence. You know, someone uh, that's really performing a high volume of surgeries because they're extremely complicated surgeries, and you don't want to go to someone that just dabbles in it. Uh, in my opinion, uh, this is a Career all in itself. And um, you know, with with my breadth of training in urology and plastic surgery, I when I first came out, I was kind of kidding myself. I thought, well, oh, I'll do like 50% transgender surgery and 50%, you know, general plastic surgery and some cosmetic surgery. And it's like, no, you if you want to be one of the best in the world at this, you do it all the time. And um, and we book out. I think I'm booking into uh, September of this year for surgery. Like, there's Man. just there's there's so much need. There's no room to do anything else.
1: I mean, that's who I would want to go to as someone who's booked out till September.
2: There that's you go. Much. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> for sure.
0: And you know, it's it's interesting. And as you said, it's sad that people have to travel so far. I'm presuming that the reason there's not excellence um in these kind of surgeries all across the country is that because in some places there's so much bias that it even impacts somebody deciding to pursue a career um of this kind of surgery have you noticed that
2: yes there's there's a lot of bias um from the medical community unfortunately and i think it was in like probably 2013 or 14 medicare lifted like a I don't know, a 30 or 40 year ban on transgender surgery. They just said, we're not, we don't, we think it's experimental. That was their stance, Um, which is insane. Um, Versus when you look at the European uh, socialized healthcare system, um, that's where I did my, one of my uh, fellowships is because uh, the group in Belgium and Amsterdam, they've been performing transgender surgeries paid for by the government since the early 90s. And so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a huge difference in how we view it versus Europe, versus Thailand, etc.
0: I mean, uh, on this show, we talk a lot about social change, and I'm thinking about, you know, the rollback of the rights of trans people that has happened for the last four years and uh, under the Trump administration and the mounting stigma um, for you know identifying as a trans person, do you see have you seen the impact of um, of that in people who come to you but or are they still saying you know fuck the stereotypes and the and the bias and the discrimination? Um, even though it's mounting over the last years, I still really need and want this surgery. I guess I'm asking a question about um, how the feeling, you know, we talked about it a little bit before, but the feelings that people have, you said that they feel like they're, what did you say? They finally feel complete, complete.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I was worried when Trump came to office and said our, First, the military was going to stop paying for this. Um, I thought that patients would have less access, but that hasn't been the case. Um, More and more states, it's a state thing. And I remember when I think it was maybe 2013 or 14, the governor of California said in California, um, it is now illegal for insurance companies to have a transgender exclusion, meaning insurance companies used to say, we exclude all transgender surgeries, just oh. blanket. We're, we're not dealing with it. That was their stance. And then the governor of California said that's illegal. More and more states are, uh, are mandating that transgender surgery is covered. And I don't know of any that, that banned the exclusion. I know that's a double negative, but then later said, "Oh well, Trump's in office. Let's let's allow the exclusion again." Um, so, I fortunately I haven't seen it now. Um, the military uh, they did not. I really didn't see many military patients um, during the Obama era, and I still don't see them. So I don't know accurate data uh, regarding the military covering the surgeries. But as far as states are concerned, I think governors have done a good job of keeping bans on transgender exclusions when it comes to insurance companies paying.
0: Amen to that, because that would just be straight up discrimination.
2: It absolutely is. There's no way Mm -hmm. to deny it's discrimination. It's 100 percent discrimination. well, it's just that, like, people have such a judgment when it comes to genitalia. It's, it's really crazy. Like, like, people, you know, Im- imagine if your genitalia was just like any other part of your body. Like, you can go to the shoe store and measure your, your foot size and then buy a shoe. Like, like, if you could just go get your vagina measured and then you could buy accessories for it and there's little, like, sparkly things or LEDs and, and you could just do that at Nordstrom's and it was fine. You know, as soon as it comes to genitalia, you know, like, people are readily they readily accept that some people are short and some people are really athletic and some people are really good at art. And we we, we all have, like he, the human race is so varied in size, shape, thoughts, ability. And then all of a sudden it comes to genitalia and people are just like, oh, I'm not believing in that. That is out of my belief system. There's no mm-hmm. way that could happen. And it's just like, it's such a a cancel culture to just it, – it totally shuts down the conversation when someone just says, well, I don't believe in that. Well, well, what a simple world you live in, you know? Like, do you just not believe in things that you don't understand, you know? It's crazy. Or that
0: you, f- or that you find disturbing, right? Like, so many people um, object to – uh, gender confirmation surgery because it just disrupts their sense this bi- about of this binary, right? Like the world is and should be organized into men and women.
2: Yeah, and it's 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 bizarre to me. Like there's we, there's fish that depending on the temperature of water in, they're in they're either male or female. There's like an entire species of lizard where they're all female and they just like spawn other females and. And, like, we read that and we go, oh, that's interesting. And then when it comes to humans, we're like, no, that just couldn't happen. <laughs> we don't so get it. Small.
1: Yeah, we're so small-minded in that way. And, unfortunately, yeah. I feel like that's how most, m- most people are. And one of the reasons why, you know, we have the show is to talk about things like that and expand people's minds into thinking, like, no, it doesn't have to be this way. There's so many other ways that it can go. And I love this point
0: about gender fluidity uh, in other species and that these aren't really clear distinctions. And we have that in the human species. We have children who are born with, could you please tell me the proper term, Curtis, but children born with genitalia that don't fit into either neat category.
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, Hermaphrodite is an appropriate scientific term. Uh, Yeah, there's... There's ambiguous genitalia is a whole category. It's a whole like several chapters in Campbell's urology that I read to become, um, to get through urology residency. And there's ambiguous genitalia where patients have hypospadias or cloacal anomalies, or there's like this really interesting population in Papua New Guinea that they have this issue uh, called 5-alpha reductase deficiency where their, their hormones, uh, they're not able to produce dihydrotestosterone because they don't have this enzyme that's really important for it. Mm -hmm. And they're born female. And then at puberty, there's this massive surge of testosterone. And the, the person was always XY. Okay. Even though they were born with female genitalia, XY is, is typically male. And so at puberty, they grow a penis. And they grow their testicles descend, and they go from female to male at puberty. And it's so accepted in Papua New Guinea that there is a term for this gender. Instead of fighting it, they just acknowledge that it exists. Like, imagine yeah, it's that. Part of their world. Yeah.
1: Who right. would have thought? Yeah. Who does that?
2: Wow, well, you could just <laughs> accept people. Like, wow.
0: Sturtis, <laughs> don't do. be silly.
2: <laughs> I know.
0: Wow, wow, are you crazy? <laughs> I want I want to just talk about kind of the darker side of what used to be called sex reassignment surgery for a minute and mm-hmm. your take on it, Curtis, which is that often when these children were born with um uh is the term ambiguous genitalia? Yes. Gen- genitalia that we just couldn't e- easily classify or male, as male or female. Um often these The parents were pressured to simply make a decision on the spot um, because doctors, this was decades ago, but I don't know if the the practice still persists. Doctors said, your child um, needs to be, quote, fixed, unfixed, unquote, right now.
2: That's right. Um,
0: Can you talk about that a little bit? Because um, I think it's interesting that the gender affirming surgeries that you do that are helping so many people now. There's kind of a dark shadow in history there
2: there is uh it's it's very unfortunate you're you're absolutely right in the as as recent as the sixties and seventies, which I think is pretty recent um, there were cases where a male child was born with ambiguous genitalia, and the default was well. They're not going to be, the child won't be, grow up to be a functional male, meaning, uh, you know, maybe the the phallus was misshapen or extremely small or, you know, a severe hypospadias or something like that. And the decision was made to just make the, the baby female. Um, there's a book called As Nature Made Him. And it's a, it's a insane story about these twins that were born, I think in Saskatchewan and uh, they were going to get circumcised and the guy that usually did it couldn't make it to the hospital because there was a snowstorm. And so this other pediatrician did it and he put the metal bell on underneath the foreskin and you're just supposed to take a knife and cut around it. Well, he took electrocautery, and shocked, basically electrocuted the phallus of this male baby. And it- This is
1: heartbreaking.
2: It's heartbreaking. Um, And it, the decision was then made. Uh, There was a guy named Dr. Money that was at Johns Hopkins. He's a psychiatrist. And um, he was lecturing on, you know, this is the whole nature versus nurture. And he- was a firm believer that if you took any male baby and put them in a dress, uh, gave them dolls and uh, treated them like a woman, they would happily grow up to be a woman. And so this family said, okay, let's, let's make our male child female. And the twin, the identical twin was male. So this is... An awful story, but the perfect scientific control, where you have a uh, you know a control which is the unharmed male baby, and then the one afflicted with the uh, terrible circumcision that's that's now going to grow up as female, and it's clear evidence that that's absolutely not true. It, It did not work, and the book goes through. This poor kid's life and how he, but was raised as a she, was always acting out, always confused, always getting in trouble at school. Um, and it's, a, it's such a tragic story.
0: It's really tragic. And, you know, Curtis, I also have read stories about girls who were born with a clitoris that was considered, quote, too large, unquote, mm-hmm. and that these kind of surgeries were performed on them as well. And that their um, sex lives um, really suffer because they can't experience pleasure in the same way, but that they also um, feel like a decision was made for them um, about their gender that they had no say in and that doesn't feel right.
2: Yeah, that's, that's true. And we are now, uh, the the teaching is different. Um, now, if a baby is born with ambiguous genitalia, uh, the family is counseled to just wait and to actually not even name the child until we get a karyotype and run some tests and to find out what exactly is going on.
0: Does that speak to our discomfort or does it intersect at all with our discomfort about gender fluidity in general, in your view?
2: Absolutely. As- People get very uncomfortable with uh genitalia sex the the thought that gender and sexuality are on a continuum they're not binary. I mean look at like um everything I spoke to there about you know you can't you can't take a young child two, three, four years old and just put them in a dress and they'll become female right now, one of the biggest Um, areas of, uh, controversy is treating adolescent transgender kids. Uh, and you hear all kinds of opponents saying, you know, this person is nine, 10 years old. There's no way they know their gender. Yeah, they do. Put a three-year-old male in a dress. They will freak out. They know their gender. Um, You, you, we are, we are not
0: for dress up for fun, but you're saying if you made them wear that every day, they would freak out.
2: That's right. You can't tell a four or five, six year old boy consistently that they're female. Uh, And the, the people that say there's no way nine, 10, 11 year old could possibly know their gender identity. Gender identity is something that's very, Basic in, in our identity of ourselves—that's known at an extremely young age.
0: Really interesting, as evidenced I'm,
2: I'm, by that that story. I uh, the book, as nature made him, that child that was consistently told he was female because of a of a terrible accident during the circumcision knew that he was not female, and it created all kinds of social problems for him.
1: And that was back in the sixties and seventies. Is that what you said? That's right. That was just right around the corner, which is insane. yeah. And the
0: and the the surgeries to um the clitorides that are considered too large, those were happening really recent, like, you know, in in the same era as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question. Mm-hmm. I could talk to you all day, but we have to wrap up maybe Whitney has the last question too. I just want to know whether from your perspective, as someone who performs these surgeries that are affirming um, to people's gender, do you see us headed toward a more tolerant future about uh, not just these types of surgeries, but gender fluidity in general? What's your 30,000 foot view on it as somebody who does the surgeries that you do, and works with the people that you work with, and encounters, I presume, um, communities also that don't understand it and don't accept it.
2: I that's a great question. I appreciate it. I do see us uh, getting there. I'm an eternal optimist, and um, I see like a social evolution with each generation. For example, uh, you know, a little more than five years ago the Supreme court was trying to figure out if gay couples should be able to get married. And anyone, my age was like, why are y'all getting paid to even talk about this? Like, of course they should, like, it's not even a question, you know, get on with it and, Mm -hmm. you know, talk about something that isn't so obvious. And, and that, that was, that was my generation. And now, um, you know, the idea of gender fluidity and gender being a continuum is new for my generation. However, I have young patients in California that, you know, would come to me and say, Oh, I got elected to my high school's homecoming court. And they're and they're and they're trans. Mm-hmm. And so something that a, a term I didn't even know when I was in high school. Now these kids are getting elected to their homecoming court. And that, that's beautiful and it's amazing. And which with each generation. I believe there's a social evolution and more people getting on board with being decent, being kind, and being accepting.
1: That's such a good place to stop. <laughs> yeah, I think, that's, I think that's like, it, it, it makes me happy. Yeah. It gives me hope for, the, for humans in general, like
2: overall. Me too. I, we're, we're going the right direction.
1: I know, especially with everything that's going on in the world, it's. I think it's really easy to think that we're not, and that it can. It can get really overwhelming and dark and shitty. And I think I was. It was the other day. I can't remember what I was looking at, but I remember being like, "What is wrong with people?" Yeah. And it made me lose hope in humans. And it was. It's a very rare feeling for me to have. But so, thank you for bringing it back.
2: <laughs> My pleasure.
1: <laughs> and how can people find you?
0: Uh, on social media, Curtis, if you are, or people, even people who are interested um, in pursuing um, gender confirmation surgery, how can they find you?
2: Uh, thank you for asking. We are the Crane Center for Transgender Surgery with locations in Austin and San Francisco. Uh, Googling uh, that will bring up our web page. We also have the MedSpa, uh, Transcend MedSpa it's uh, transcend underscore uh, med spa right here in Austin for any kind of genital beautification someone may need, or we also have our lovely nurse practitioner, Natalie Yingling, ready to perform Botox filler on anyone, transgender or not. Uh, she's
1: such a sweetheart. I love her
0: too. Yeah, she's great. I, I just want to say that I don't think that anybody needs what you're calling genital beautification.
2: They're all beautiful, aren't they? Yep. Yep.
0: Um thanks I didn't mean to interrupt you telling people how they could find you.
2: Oh, I think I think that was it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great. We we so I so appreciate and I know Whitney does too that you made the time to explain this increasingly common practice to us, but also I I just love and appreciate so much how you helped put it in a cultural context about tolerance and social change. Thank you so much for the education today.
2: No, oh, well, yeah, thank you. Thank, you, thank you for having me. We we barely touched the tip of the iceberg. If you ever want me back, I'd love to be on.
1: Oh, I think that we're, we're, we just have to do this again.
2: I'd love yeah, to. Yeah,
1: absolutely. No doubt. And I really, I feel like we just touched the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that we can talk about and talk about you as a person too, because you're so interesting and yeah, you're definitely going to come back for sure. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Thank you, Curtis.
2: Me as well. Thank you both very much.
0: Hey, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, it
1: would help us a lot if you would leave a review. Yeah, leave a review, subscribe. We want to know how you guys felt about the episode. It really helps us out a lot to continue the success of the podcast and keep spreading our message.